Well, good morning. If I haven't gotten the pleasure to meet you yet, my name is Quinn. I am a deacon and one of the members here at Warnell Road Baptist Church. And uh, I'm delighted to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. We have a bit of a longer story in Luke's gospel today. And I believe you'll be best served if you have your Bibles open on your laps as I read. If you're using one of the blue pew Bibles in front of you, I believe our text is found on page 866. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that one as our gift to you. Luke 8, 40 through 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the the crowd surrounds you and they're pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here not to hear my words, not to sing some songs or just throw up some prayers, but we are here to behold Christ and the salvation you offer for sinners. You are a strong Savior for desperate sinners, as we see in this story. So, Holy Spirit, come now, attend the preaching with power, and help us to look to Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can hardly think of another text in Scripture 
that within one story captures so many essential characteristics of our Savior's ministry here on earth. It has all the ingredients of a great gospel story. We see desperate people affected by the curse of the fall. We see the willingness of Jesus to be inconvenienced by desperate and needy people and and bless them. We even get this like two-for-one deal on miracles. He's going to raise the girl, and somebody touches him and gets healed. We get a foretaste of resurrection. And the thread running through all these ingredients is a charge to believe in the power of Jesus over disease and over death. What a story it is. And I should remind you that unlike many stories, this one doesn't come to us as the work of some creative evangelist or some cleverly devised religious myth in order to trick you. No, but it comes to us as the eyewitness testimony of those who stood in the crowds that day. Of those who heard with their own ears the begging of Jairus. Of those who saw with their own eyes the woman touch the hem of the Redeemer's garment. And so as listeners here this morning, we're not afforded the luxury of just, you know, sitting back and enjoying some sentimental story about a man doing good. But an answer is demanded of us at every turn. In every story, in every miracle, in every parable, the living Jesus leaps off the page and he confronts us with a question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And following on the heels of that question is another. What does it mean to believe or have faith in Jesus? And I want to propose to you that how we answer those two questions is the most important thing about us. So as we go through our text, I want these questions to be in your mind. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to believe in him? If you're taking notes, I have three points. And we come to point number one, a desperate plea, verses 40 through 42, a desperate plea. The story begins with the crowd's excitement and this like nervous energy to meet Jesus. Uh, Jesus and his disciples had been on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. uh, And the previous town that he was in begged him to leave. But we note that On this side of the Sea of Galilee, these crowds are begging Jesus to come. Possibly thousands of people waiting for Jesus. Men taking a break from their work. Women leaving the home. Children coming in from the fields. All just to catch a glimpse of a man in his early 30s who some are calling a prophet. Others a teacher. Some a troublemaker. Or maybe even the Messiah. Many in the crowd were probably excited to see Jesus do some super cool Jesus stuff. You know, maybe get a free lunch from him. Uh, But for at least two people that day, their welcome was far more urgent. Because for them, they weren't just seeking to be entertained, but life and death hung in the balance. A desperate man emerges from this crowd named Jairus. And for him, the worst nightmare of any parent is coming true. His daughter, about 12 years of age, his only daughter, lays at home and she's dying. 
You can imagine the scene. Jairus falls down before the feet of Jesus. He lays his body in the hot, dusty, Middle Eastern dirt, tears welling up in his eyes, begging Jesus over and over, teacher, please come. Please, my daughter's at home dying. I've heard reports about you that you can raise the dead, that you can touch people and they're made clean. Please come to my house. You you can just see him begging at the feet of Jesus. Luke notes that he's a ruler of the synagogue, meaning he arranges the weekly worship services. And so he's a prominent man. He's respected. And he's certainly somebody you wouldn't see begging at the feet of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. But as death has a way of doing, the gravitational pull of our mortality focuses our minds on what truly matters. And it flattens out all those social distinctions that we so often care about. And whether he wanted to or not, Jairus' circumstances force his hand to consider that Jesus might be able to do for him what no one else could. I wonder what Jesus felt when Jairus came and fell at his feet. I think if, if we were in Jesus' shoes, I think we'd surely have compassion on this man. But I wonder if there wouldn't be, like, in the back of our mind, this kind of, you know, seriously, man, like, I just got done, like, casting out 6,000 demons in the town over, and I got to come back and you lay this on me? You know, all right, where's your daughter? I'll go. But we don't see that with Jesus. Who is Jesus? We see that he's a patient savior for needy sinners who welcomes desperate pleas for rescue. Who gladly takes upon himself the burdens and the inconveniences of his people in order to show them that he is far more than capable of bearing their griefs and carrying their sorrows. The more I reread the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, the more I'm amazed at his endurance to patiently bear with needy people that just want things from him. And when I was thinking about the desperation of Jairus and even the woman that we'll meet a little bit later, something occurred to me. I don't often see myself as a Jairus. I don't think I'm that desperate or needy. In fact, sometimes I think I'm like strong and and a competent person. And in my pride, I can often think that I have something to offer God. I'll pay lip service to total depravity, but some quiet part in my mind is like thinking that God's impressed with me. And that on the basis of that, he'll listen to my prayers. But did you notice with Jairus that he makes no appeals about who he was, the ruler of the synagogue? He simply comes to Jesus and he begs him to come. Friends, the problem with thinking that we are strong is that strong people don't need a savior. The whole point of needing salvation, of of needing a savior to come from heaven and rescue us from our sins, is that we are powerless to save ourselves. We have nothing to deposit to him. And in fact, we, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the very sin that made it necessary for God to save us in the first place. Neediness is a prerequisite for being a Christian because it presupposes a lack of strength to save ourselves. And so when we bring our requests to God like Jairus and trust that 
all things will work out according to his perfect will, we are actually manifesting the belief and the faith that we have in him. When we come to him with our desperate pleas in all the shapes and all the sizes that they come in, family problems, health issues, loneliness, depression, greed, lust, envy, whatever it be, we show our dependence on God and our belief that he and he alone is powerful enough to handle all of our messes. God doesn't, he doesn't tire of receiving our requests. But he stands immovable and unchangeable in his compassion towards us. So friends, come to him. Ask like Jairus and it will be given to you. Seek Jesus among the crowds like the woman and you'll find him. Knock at the door and Jesus will come in, take you by the hand and whisper, child, arise. Fall down at the feet of a merciful and faithful high priest and make your requests known to God. A loving father who cares for you, whether they're big or whether they're small. So who is Jesus? He's someone who's powerful enough to answer all your requests, but also caring enough to shelter you under his wings. This brings us to our second point. A miraculous interruption. A miraculous interruption. Verses 43 through 48. Well, Jesus answers Jairus' request, and he sets out to go to his house, and all the crowds follow him. And on the way there, Jesus is inevitably slowed down by all the people that are crowding in and trying to touch him. I can imagine, like, the impatience and... Uh, Maybe even the anxiety of Jairus as his daughter lays dying and they're slowed down by all these people trying to touch Jesus. And amidst this crowd pressing in on Jesus is an unnamed woman slowly and carefully making her way through the crowd to Jesus. Luke tells us that this woman has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Many of you who have health problems know not only physically, but emotionally, how exhausting it can be to have suffering prolonged. And for 12 years, this woman suffered from a discharge of blood. The same amount of time Jairus' daughter was born till now, she's been suffering. Many scholars think it was likely uterine bleeding. Sorry if that's TMI for you. And we don't have to go too far in imagining the consequences. She, she likely didn't have a husband. According to the ceremonial laws of Moses, she was considered unclean, which means anything she touches is unclean. So if she touches a chair, and five minutes later, somebody sits down in that chair, they're now unclean. And so you can imagine that she just had to spend her life for at least these 12 years in quarantine with not that many people eager to go talk to her or spend time with her or maybe even touch her. And she was poor. The way Luke literally phrases it is she had spent lavishly all her means of subsistence on physicians. And none of them could make her well. So here's a woman who's left, forgotten, and penniless. A desperate woman like Jairus. And so, risking embarrassment and scorn, 
she works her way to Jesus. And instead of approaching him from the front, she approaches him from behind. And she stoops down and she touches the fringe of Jesus' garment. And immediately, years of agony are reversed in one touch of the Savior's garment. I love this because in that moment, the great physician did what no other physician could do, and he's not even paying attention. Probably much to the dismay of Jairus, Jesus stops and he asks, who touched me? Which is an odd question when you're in a crowd of everybody trying to touch you. And Peter sarcastically speaks up for the group and he's like, master, seriously, like everybody's trying to touch you. Why are you stopping and asking who touched you? This daughter's dying. Let's get going. But Jesus stops and he says, no, 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 no. I know someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. An odd statement, uh, no doubt, but I, I don't think we should overload this with mystic overtones as if Jesus's healing power is like a battery that when you use it, it needs to be recharged. Or even that he didn't know what was going on. I think Jesus is playing dumb here on purpose. And I think he has a purpose for stopping and saying this. Not only to test the faith of Jairus, who's checking his watch because his daughter's dying. But also he wishes to draw out the woman who touched him. Because for Jesus, he not only cared that she was physically healed, but he cared to show her the dignity that she deserved. He cared to look her in the eyes and, and, and show her that she could trust him for far more than just physical healing. She thought she was taking hold of the Redeemer, but the Redeemer was actually taking hold of her. And that woman in that moment, she's stunned and she forgets her exit strategy. And the text says she comes trembling and fearful to Jesus and tells everybody what happened. I can only imagine that she's afraid because he found out she's touched him. And far from condemning her for touching him or being annoyed that she slowed him down, Jesus turns to her. He blesses her and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's the only time in all the gospels that Jesus ever calls someone his daughter. I mean, think of the relief that flooded this woman the moment she hears daughter come from his lips and not woman. She expected curse, but instead she received a blessing. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? I, I think this woman shows us. She didn't believe if she had enough faith that Jesus would save her, as if faith were this mere transaction. I give you faith, Jesus, you give me healing. There are people who will tell you that today, but the Bible calls them false teachers, and he calls them wolves. No, but she believed that Jesus was powerful enough to heal her if he wanted. That's the difference. And, and the miracles we read about in the Gospels, they are not there to promise us that God will in fact heal us from our sickness or remove every trial from us if we just have enough faith. But they are there to show us that Jesus is capable to save us from anything. And he alone is worthy of our trust, whether he heals us or whether he doesn't. 
In fact, he might not remove your sickness or your trial from you until you die. Because a felt sense of your weakness increases your awareness that you receive everything you have from the hand of God. Including salvation. And this woman shows us that we are not saved due to the amount of faith we have. But we were saved because of who we've touched. It's Christ alone who saves. It's not even your willingness to be saved. It's Christ who who takes you by the hand and leads you over the Jordan River. It's not your own steps. It's the great shepherd who finds and binds up weak and wandering sheep. And he puts them over his shoulder. And he finds them pasture and finds them drink. And by a mere touch, this woman received all the fullness. And all a fullness of healing and all salvation. And when I read this, I, I can't help but think if we have a little bit of Christ, we have all of him. She didn't need to touch his sleeve. She didn't need to give him a hug. She just needed to touch his garment and she received everything. Because when we are brought into union with Christ by his grace through our faith, all that is his becomes all that is ours. You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? To illustrate this, I'm married to my beautiful bride, Madison. Hi, Madison. And it's a status. I'm not a little bit married. I'm either married or I'm not. A woman is either pregnant or she's not pregnant, whether it's five weeks or 40 weeks. A dead person is not a little bit dead. And likewise, we who have touched Christ are not a little bit of Christians. We, we have all the benefits that Christ died to purchase for us by the merest touch of faith. Regeneration. Justification. Sanctification. Glorification. They're all ours or none of it is. But the least bit of faith is saving faith because it's who you touch that matters. This isn't to give license to sin. As if it no longer matters now that you have faith how you live your life. But it's to encourage you that your salvation rests upon the shoulders of a strong savior and not your own. Did you notice that um, in the story, Jesus distinguishes between those in the crowds grasping at him and this woman who touches him in faith? I went to Israel in 2018. And in Jerusalem, there's this really old church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And if you look up, you know, on Google, like top 10 places to go when you're in Israel, like this is like one or two. Because... A lot of scholars and people think that this is the most likely place where Jesus was crucified and buried and resurrected. And so in the third or fourth century, they just dumped this church on it. And we went and I was excited, but then it like very quickly became my least favorite part of the trip. Because you walk in and it's just absolutely crowded and I hate crowds. 
But every single space in this, this massive church is filled with like silver and gold and images of Jesus, which are forbidden in scripture. And I, I couldn't help but think a lot of the gold is probably given by people thinking they're paying their way into heaven. And we come to this, this room, this spacious room where there's a bedrock and it's encased in glass and they like built this little altar in front of it of silver and gold. And this bedrock is where they think Jesus' cross went into. And they also think it's where like God formed Adam from this bedrock. And all these people in there are just like violently shouldering each other to get to the altar. Like no regard for anybody else. Like the room becomes a bunch of fullbacks on the one yard line doing a fullback dive into the goal line. It's just like that's what it is. And it's awful. And I, I couldn't help but think that they're, they're like grasping and crying and touching the bedrock out of mere superstition other than any kind of pure faith. And I can't help but imagine the crowds trying to grasp at Jesus like this. So many people in the Gospels, they, they just want something from Jesus without wanting him. They wanted the food he could provide. They wanted to be entertained by what he could do. And, and many people today, likewise, want, Je- want things from Jesus without ever wanting him. They want more money. They want better health. They want their, their kids to obey. They want to fight less with their spouse. All good things. But in essence, what they want is a more consistent and manifest morality to make themselves feel better. They don't want Jesus. Many people fill churches, they hear sermons, they partake of the sacraments their whole lives, and because of these things, they think they are saved, if they even think about their Christian status as being saved. But the whole time they wear the name Christian on their back of their jersey, they live how they want to. And they don't let the, you know, their religion infringe too much upon their lives because they're afraid that they'll be considered radical. And they really just want to have, just be considered nice. Many people, they might even call themselves Christians. They might even be on member roles at churches. They press in upon Christ, but they never touch him. To Jesus, this woman's touch felt different from the crowds because Jesus knows the difference between those grasping at him and those who touch him in faith. It's kind of like if you go to a park and you're a parent, you know the cry of your child from all the others. I was working out with Zach Hall the other day at the seminary and his daughter comes up and just by like a mirror like cry, Zach's like, oh, there she is. <laughs> it's like that. Jesus knows his kids. And there will come a day when God will call every person to account. And you will be judged for your sin. And unless you're able to point to Christ and say, that man was judged in my place and I have received his holiness, then you will stand condemned by God for all eternity. But praise be to God that there is now no condemnation for those who touch the Redeemer's garment. Friends, I ask, what are you waiting for? Those of you who are not Christians, what are you waiting for? Those of you who who call yourselves Christians but live like you want and deep down know that you don't trust Jesus for all your righteousness, what are you waiting for? Today is the day of salvation. 
When all is said and done and the judgment books are open and Christ sits upon his throne in judgment and he asks, who has touched my garments? Will you be one who touched him in faith and hear from his lips, enter into the joy of your master? Or will you be one who merely grasped at him and hear those awful words, depart from me for I never knew you? And I pray it's the former. Jesus arrives at Jairus' home, and we arrive at our final point. A foretaste of resurrection. Verses 49 through 56. A foretaste of resurrection. As Jesus is speaking with the woman, Jairus receives news that his daughters died. And the messenger tells him, you know, don't bother the Jesus anymore. He's, he's probably a busy guy. And I can imagine that Jairus is probably filled with anguish and possibly even anger at the fact that they didn't get there sooner. You know, if Jesus wouldn't have stopped to talk to this woman, maybe my daughter would be alive. Because it seems that Jairus has this assumption that Jesus can only heal if she's still living. But he can't do anything for the dead. But Jesus is gentle with him, and he doesn't rebuke him, but he encourages him. He says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. You just saw me heal the woman, believe. The very one who breathed life into Adam at creation can certainly breathe life again into this little girl who's died. For reasons only known to Jesus, he just allows his inner circle to come with him. Peter, John, and James. And the parents also. And when they come near to the house, they encounter this crowd that's you know, weeping and mourning for the girl. Kind of like La- the story of Lazarus, if you remember that one. And in that day, you would hire professional criers <laughs> to come to your house and wail loudly for a couple of pers- purposes. To-, to mourn publicly the fact that somebody in your family died, but uh, to also let the whole town know that, that someone's died. Bring their flutes and they'd play. I don't know if that's the case with her because she just died. And unless Jairus had him on like retainer, you know, you know I, I don't, I, I, maybe it's the case. But Jesus, anyhow, enc- uh, encounters this crowd weeping. And, and he also turns to them as well like Jairus and he encourages them. He, he says, don't weep. She's not dead. She's, she's just sleeping. But the crowds reject Jesus. They, they laugh at him. They, they ridicule him because they know that dead people don't come back from the dead. Both Jairus and the crowd, it seems to me, if they were asked the question, who is Jesus? They would probably answer with something less than God, but maybe a respectable title. Because if they truly thought that Jesus was God's son, they, would, they certainly wouldn't be weeping, but they would be cheering and rejoicing that the very resurrection and the life has showed up on the scene. As Jesus enters the room where the girl lay, he, he takes her by the hand and he, he says to her what every Christian at the last day will hear when the trumpet sounds. Child, arise. He brought her back from the dead with a mere word. Jared read the story about Elisha and the Shunammite woman earlier. He had to touch her. He had to lay on them. 
But with Jesus, he just has to speak a word because someone far greater than Elisha or Elijah and all the Old Testament prophets was here. The same word that the son obeyed when he said, let there be light. This girl rises back from the dead. Just as immediately as the woman was healed from her flow of blood with a touch, just as immediately as the winds and the waves ceased in a moment at Jesus' rebuke, just as immediately as the demons fled from the man among the tombs at Gerasene, so at once this woman, this little girl, returns to life. She gasps for breath, she opens her eyes, and she returns. An amazing climax to this sequence of events in an already amazing chapter. The parents marvel, as do the disciples. They're probably freaked out. But Jesus tells them this odd thing. Don't tell anybody what just happened. Why would he not want anybody to know what just happened? I mean, it's going to be hard to conceal the fact that this girl's back from the dead when she's running around the markets with her mom the next Monday and everybody sees her. So I don't think Jesus intended, don't ever tell anybody that this happened because we're reading about it. I think it's just a temporary measure. Remember the crowds are trying to crush him outside? I think he doesn't want to be crushed. I think everybody's going to be like, hey, I got like five dead people. Can you come, you know, can you come with me? In fact, the very word that Peter uses with the crowds pressing in on him is the same word you use when you squeeze a grape and its juices run out. They're, they're, they're squeezing him. So I think he just says this to, you know, for temporary measures. The testimony of the woman with the flow of blood, Jairus' daughter, it not only implants in us as the readers the firm hope that we will one day rise from the dead with everlasting life and resurrected bodies, but it encourages us, it encourages our faith to increase, to put it in a Savior that is strong. Paul says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Remember when I said, all that is Christ is all that is ours? Because Christ walked out of the grave 2,000 years ago, you'll be able to rise at the last day. That's your only hope. Just as Adam died because of his sin, and so now all men die, so now that Jesus has risen, we will all rise. And this means that as you feel your body wearing away, every ache you have, every pain every biopsy, every sorrow, you are feeling the groanings of the curse of the fall that will one day be reversed in an instant, never to come back when the sons of God are revealed in glory. In that day, all things will be made new, including your bodies. And while it doesn't always make it easier when you're, when you're going through suffering, it gives us hope to persevere during the short time on earth that we know there is an eternal heavenly bliss awaiting us. There'll be no coffins in heaven. There, there'll be no wheelchairs. There's not going to be any doctors. There's not going to be any more cancer. There's not going to be any more counselors because the great counselor will come to you and he'll wipe away every tear from your eye. And in that day, God will once again walk in our midst. 
And we will see him face to face and we will be made like him in an instant all because we touched his garment. And our garments will be made white in the blood of the lamb. And his, his triumph will be our testimony and our song. We won't look at the crowns he gives us. We'll look at his pierced hands and on his pierced feet. And the lamb will be all the glory in that day in Emmanuel's land. And we catch a glimpse of this all in just the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. It appears like a simple story at first when you read it. It's not that long. But you see how much power is contained in it? So to return to my question, who is Jesus? This entire story, and particularly this last bit, they scream about who he is. He's not merely a man, a nice man with nice morals who sadly got killed. He's the son of God who came from heaven for us and for our salvation and laid down his life for the sheep so that he could take it up again. He's patient to hear our requests. He alone has the medicine to heal our diseases. He's strong enough to lift us out of our desperation. He's willing to be touched by unclean people and he's willing to touch dead bodies. And perhaps most importantly, he's able to raise the dead to life. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to touch the fringe of his garment in faith. To trust that to have a little bit of him is to have all of him. So friends, I commend you this morning to so worthy a savior. Who for our sake was made sin. Who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to leave you with the words of a great forgotten poem turned into a hymn by Anne Steele. She's the daughter of a particular Baptist preacher, and she was one of the greatest hymn writers in the 18th century. She wrote this hymn in 1760 called The Physician of Souls. Deep are the wounds which sin has made. Where shall the sinner find a cure? In vain, alas, is nature's aid. The work exceeds all nature's power. Sin, like a raging fever, reigns with fatal strength in every part. The dire contagion fills the veins and spreads its poison to the heart. And can no sovereign balm be found? And is no kind physician nigh to ease the pain and heal the wound ere life and hope forever fly? There is a great physician near, Look up, O fainting soul, and live. See in his heavenly smiles appear such ease as nature cannot give. See in the Savior's dying blood, life, health, and bliss, abundant flow. Tis only this dear sacred flood can ease thy pain and heal thy woe. Sin throws in vain its pointed dart, for here a sovereign cure is found. A cordial for the fainting heart and a balm for every painful wound. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, you are far more powerful than we could ever think. And you are able to save us from all things. And still, we sometimes refuse to come to you. But Lord, turn our weak and our wandering hearts to come back to you, to look in the face of a sweet Savior who tells us to go in peace, who makes us his children. Lord, I pray that we would all look to Christ every day, every morning for all our salvation, for all our righteousness, that we would turn from our wicked ways and believe in the gospel and the power you have to save us. Forgive us when we don't look to you, when we look to the things of this world. And Lord, bring us back. We know that you are a great and a worthy redeemer. So help us in our lives bear a testimony to so worthy a redeemer. We pray all this to the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.